If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to 1 Peter. Our time together this morning will be greatly helped by you following along with me in a copy of God's inerrant and inspired word, the Bible. If you do not have a Bible here with you, you should be able to find a Bible underneath the seat in front of you. If you do not have a copy that you can call your own, we would love for you to take that copy home with you today so that you might learn more about Jesus Christ and him crucified. Uh, But we leave those scriptures here for you in your seats so that you might be able to read them and to follow along. And we're going to ask you to keep them open for the whole sermon. The sermon is typically much more enjoyable and hopefully makes more sense when we keep the scripture open the whole time. I'm going to begin reading today in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. Peter writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would help us as we turn our attention to your word. Your word is truth. We pray that your spirit would stir our affections so that we who profess the name of Christ might walk in accordance with that truth. We pray, Father, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you have revealed in your word, that we would Behold wonderful and beautiful things from your word that teaches us about your Christ, our Savior. We ask now, as we give our attention to it, that you would protect us. The enemy does not long for us to know your word and to understand your word. He seeks to snatch the good word that we hear. He is constantly seeking to distract so that we might not apply its teaching to our lives. What we have not, please give to us. What we are not, please make us. We pray and we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. A podcast as popular as The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which is a journalistic style narrative chronicling the demise of the influential pastor and megachurch leader Mark Driscoll, is going to have, as Trevin Wax noted, cultural ramifications. There's no way around it. The cautionary tale of Mark Driscoll and the lessons from Mars Hill Church will affect and have affected the thousands of pastors and church leaders and church members, perhaps some of you Christians here today, who listened as episodes began to be released in June 2021. 
some of the influence will be good. I hope a future generation of pastors will develop a strong distaste for the pastoral strut, the air of a leader who sees himself as a big deal or very important. Maybe the rise and fall will inoculate the next generation from some of the excesses of evangelicalism's celebrity culture. We are complicit in celebrating leaders too much and treating them like celebrities. Other good results? The podcast provides an opportunity for people who have been bruised and burned in toxic environments to speak out, to join with others, to find healing, to regain a love for the local church. Driscoll's downfall sounds a warning to pastors, a warning for the sake of those who seek after a movement, who seek to abuse their authority and bully the sheep that they've been called to serve. The rise and fall could probably jumpstart important conversations about the misuse of authority, how an anti-establishment ethos can itself turn into something that is oppressive, and how the ways that a reaction to feminist ideology can drift far afield from what the Bible actually teaches about the differences between men and women. If the Rise and Fall podcast leads to internal examination among church leaders, and if that results in self-reflection and the type of self-reflection that leads to an aversion to a kind of ruling and authority that Jesus said is the way of the world, our generation will be better off for it. But some of the cultural influences of the podcast could be bad. One area stands out in particular, as Wax noted. Pastors and church leaders and church members who listened to the podcast may be vulnerable to the lie that the exercise of pastoral authority itself is wrong and dangerous. Some may begin to assume that any kind of church hierarchy or leadership should be suspect, even if explicitly spelled out in Scripture where the apostles are urging Christians to obey their leaders. Reacting against abusive overreach of authority, in the case of Mars Hill, a future generation of pastors and churches and church members and church leaders may drift into a pool of passivity altogether. It's not hard to imagine a future generation of church planters and church pastors who so coddle people out of deference to every church member that they no longer make any tough calls or decisive decisions. What if an unintended consequence of these recent leadership debacles is actually a pendulum swing so that rightful concern about the abuse of authority leads us to abandon authority altogether? As we learned last week, until Jesus returns, we can expect that some churches will be led by bad shepherds who exercise their God-given authority for their own benefit no matter what consequence it takes out on the sheep. Seeing leadership abuse close up and personal should keep us from devoting ourselves exclusively to any kind of human authority or to any one person in particular. God is king, not the preacher. We are right to resist wrongful uses of authority of disqualified shepherds, but the answer to bad authority is not no authority. It's good authority. We mustn't respond to abuse of authority with abandonment of authority altogether. Good authority, properly exercised, is God's gift to his people. 
To substantiate that claim, Jonathan Lehman points to King David's last words in 2 Samuel 23. The one who rules the people with justice, who rules in the fear of God, is like the morning light when the sun rises on a cloudless morning, the glisten of rain on sprouting glass. Lehman adds, good authority strengthens and grows. It authors and creates. It's the teacher teaching. It's the coach coaching. It's the mother mothering. It's the rules for the game. It's the lines on the road. It's the covenant for lovers. It's the lessons for a child, the chance to grow and expand and eventually take dominion ourselves. One of history's greatest secrets is that God needs his authority to grow and expand us, not to shrink and snuff us out. Which is why these verses, in Peter's correspondence to these Christians, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, are of particular relevance to members of the church, this church, this morning. God means his authority to grow and to expand you, not to shrink and snuff you out. And these verses tell you, verse 1, what the elders among you are commanded to do as leaders who lead you. Peter doesn't just say, I'm going to teach the elders something, everybody else check out for a moment. He says, the elders among you, which implies that those among them are listening to what they need to know. And that makes these verses and this sermon relevant, not only for elders and aspiring elders, but to members and prospective members and to non-Christians, because the pastor's life is to match his message. And it is actually to be a picture of self-sacrifice for the good of the sheep. In these verses, Peter teaches us that the whole of the Christian life that he set forth in the first four chapters is to be pursued in the context of community under the loving authority of elders whom God has raised up to guide and to guard and to protect and to teach and to feed his people because willing shepherds make healthy churches. Notice first their continuity and authority. Look with me again in verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Peter knew the verse 1 elders needed to understand what is required of them, especially when the sheep are being harassed. We have to think immediately what is taking place in the lives of these people. They're being alienated and ostracized and maligned because they are following Jesus. And when the sheep are being harassed by those who would seek to do them harm, they become exceedingly difficult to shepherd. So Peter steps into the gap and he teaches the shepherds what they need to know when the sheep are being harassed so that they might be able to shepherd them appropriately. So he, verse 1, exhorted the elders, the pastors, plural, in these churches. And he does it in such a personal way. There's actually only three times in this letter, chapter 2, verse 12, chapter 5, verse 12, and here in chapter 5, verse 1, where Peter goes into the first person and says, I want to tell you something. 
I want you to know this. You need to know this so that you can be prepared for what is before you. The churches in Jerusalem had elders, plural. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in all of the churches that they visited during their first missionary journey. When a contingent of leaders visited Paul from Ephesus, they were called elders, Acts chapter 20, verse 17. The person who's sick and needs prayer is encouraged to summon the elders of the church to pray for them and to anoint them. Elders functioned in Ephesus, 1 Peter chapter 3, and uh, they were appointed in Crete, Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Every piece of evidence that we have in the New Testament tells us that elders were widespread in the church. They're mentioned by biblical authors, Luke, Paul, Peter, and James. They stretch over a huge geographic region in the Greco-Roman world, from Jerusalem to Palestine, the whole of Asia Minor to all of Crete, and they always functioned in plurality. That means that there was always more than one elder in the local church. More than one implies at least two. There was always more than one pastor serving the congregation. And they functioned in one local church. They were never a bureaucratic board overseeing and governing a bunch of local churches. Those pastors knew who their sheep were in their local church. Peter mentions the elders here, but he does not mention them to signify that there's some type of succession from him to them. Peter never underscores, no one ever underscores, a succession of a leadership from himself to someone else bearing some sort of religious authority. Rather, instead of appealing to his authority as an apostle, notice what Peter does. In this moment, he could have said, I'm one of the twelve, hand-selected by Jesus. Somebody was on the Mount of Transfiguration. All of you be quiet and listen to me. Instead, Peter identifies himself as a fellow elder, another pastor, serving the local church, to communicate his understanding of their fears and temptations. Now, why would that be the case? Look up in chapter 4, verse 19. This is where the chapter divisions don't help us. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. Who are the first people that Peter has in mind when he says they suffer according to God's will? Chapter 5, verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you. Peter identifies as a fellow pastor, and he anticipated that the elders who constitute the visible leadership of the local church would likely be the very first people to endure the hardship that he is speaking about and would need to be exhorted to entrust their souls to a faithful creator while they're doing good. The good of a pastor, the work of a pastor, because the work of a pastor has never been harder. That was true in Peter's day, and that is true in our day. Everyone has an idea for the best way to organize the way that we gather together when we worship. Everyone here has a better idea of how to make disciples and to care for everyone. Our church, just like other churches all around the globe, have been politicized. Regional governments change what we need to do when we gather together. Some of us think that we need to submit to the authorities. The rest of us think that we need to rise up in rebellion of those who are trying to destroy us. Pastors feel more emotional pressure now than ever. They toil longer. They seem to accomplish less than ever before. As a pastor, it is tempting to believe that we have a uniquely difficult calling, that no one understands what it's like to live like a pastor. Pastoring has always been difficult. That's not true to the 21st century. That's always been the case because it's always been paradoxical. 
pastoring is always mixed with glory and ruin, with privilege and torment, with opportunity and hardship, with blessing and challenge, with good days and bad days like everybody else's pastor. Pastors have friends and allies who assist them and advise them and favor them and flatter them and haunt them and hover over them. But they also have adversaries who criticize them and condemn them and squint at the smallest decision that they don't like. They drown their pastors and they delight in their demise, forgetting that it is much easier to critique a sermon or a book or a decision than to deliver a sermon or write a book or make a decision. Everybody can play the role of a leader between their ears. It is much harder to be a leader. Friends, Peter knew all too well that it is much easier to rail at a pastor than to be one. So he identified with these pastors as a fellow elder. He had every opportunity to come up and say, you foolish pastors, look at the great example of Jesus. Be like him, dummies. Instead, he walks up alongside them and says, I get it. I'm a fellow elder. I know what it's like. And I'm walking here with you. And I want to help you. And he reminded them as a fellow elder, verse 1, that he was an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ. He was a witness of the sufferings of Christ, not because he observed the crucifixion, because Peter most likely did not observe the crucifixion, but because he faithfully bore testimony to it. And that is precisely what these elders are supposed to do despite their suffering, in their suffering, even though they are suffering. Brothers and sisters, a pastor serving in plurality, testifying to the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified, is a faithful pastor. And we should celebrate that pastor. Other people might be able to preach the gospel better. Nobody can preach a better gospel. Because it is that message, the message of that, of that salvation that calls you out of darkness, as Peter has taught us, into his marvelous light, and it proclaims to you that you can be recipients of mercy by repenting of your sins and placing all of your faith in Jesus Christ, placing all of your hope in his life and death and resurrection and ascension because he bore the wrath that you deserve when he died the death that you should have died so that you might inherit the kingdom that is his as children of God by faith. Have you believed that message? Have you heard that message? Friends, if you're hearing that message, no matter how much we might dissatisfy you as your pastors, that is all that we can be expected to do. And if you've not believed that message, the pastors of this church call you to believe that message. Have you trusted Jesus Christ by faith? What prevents you from turning away from your sins and pleading the mercy of Christ? What keeps you from coming to the shepherd and overseer of your soul? Is it pride? Is it fear that people will now know that you're a sinner? Brothers and sisters, we confess every week that we are sinners, reminding ourselves that we are all sinners. There's nothing to hide. There's no pride to be had. Come to Christ. Trust in Christ. Hope in Christ. Believe in Christ. 
This is the message that the pastor must preach faithfully, week in and week out, day in and day out, decade in and decade out, prayer and ministry of the word, that message to God's people. The scripture says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved because you are a sinner in desperate need of deliverance from an eternal hell that is coming for all who do not trust in Jesus Christ by faith. Will you go to hell? Because you refuse to trust in Christ? Come to Christ. Trust in Christ. If you hear nothing else from this sermon, hear what the shepherds of this church want. Every member of this church, every person hearing today, anyone who ever listens online, trust in the mercy of a faithful Savior. He will forgive you to the uttermost. There is no sin that you could commit that would take you outside of his loving reach. The devil would long for you to believe that, but he is a liar. Come to Christ. If you want to know more about that, I'd love to speak with you at the tunnel. If that sounds like a foreign language to you, you come to the best place today. We specialize in this language. Bump one of the people around you. Tell them that you want to know more about Jesus Christ and him crucified. Take one of those Bibles. It's not stealing this time. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's word. Open it up and read the scripture and learn about Jesus Christ. Find us after the service. Or if you don't want to talk to anybody, fill out one of those guest cards. We'd love to follow up with you. Although these elders will suffer, they will, as we will see, like Peter, verse 1, share in the glory that is going to be revealed when Christ returns. And that is the reason and reason enough to persevere. Chapter 4, verse 13, as they rejoice insofar as they share Christ's sufferings because they will also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter begins chapter 5 by exhorting these elders to entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The good work of a pastor, giving their work, their themselves to the prayer and the ministry of the word, to the sheep that they're called to serve in the context of the local church that they've been placed because willing shepherds make healthy churches. Their continuity and authority, notice second, their charge as shepherds. Look in verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Now, somebody else's flock, shepherd your flock. Give yourself to your people. Doesn't matter if they can write for other churches, they can do things for other congregations. Hopefully, they can, and may the Lord bless in those ways. Their primary task is to shepherd the flock of God among you. What does that look like? Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Though he was an apostle, Peter, as Calvin noted, knew that authority was not delegated to him over other pastors... But on the contrary, he was joined with the rest in participation in the exact same office. But in verses 2 through 3, Peter teaches us that it's not merely continuity in the authority, but also solidarity in the essential same service of that office as well. 
And that service is described in the urgent charge to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherding is the essential work of the elder, according to Peter. Not being decisive, not being gifted or good at speaking, not being good in the classroom or eloquent when writing or wise when planning. Part of the problem that we have in our age is that we are looking for the wrong thing. Someone who is attractional, who can fill a room, who can astound the crowds, who knows all things. Peter doesn't tell us that. A good shepherd, a good pastor is someone who gives themselves to this essential work. And that should be of no surprise to anyone who is familiar with the 21st chapter of John's Gospel. If you have your Bible, turn there with me now. If you do not know where that is, ask the person beside you or look in the table of contents. John 21. At the end of Jesus' life, after Peter, who professed that he would die with Christ and then denied Christ three times, we find that Peter is out on the Galilean seashore fishing. And then in John's Gospel, chapter 21, verse 15, we read this. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, can you imagine for just a moment how those words had to be felt by Peter? I will die with you. I don't know the man. I swear to God, I do not know the man. Do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my sheep. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. Now, you can imagine Jesus challenging Peter's so-called affection here. Because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And you can imagine what's running through his mind. You knew that I blew it. You knew that I was a coward. You know that I ran away. You know absolutely everything about me. You knew that I cried myself to sleep. You knew that I felt like an absolute and abysmal failure. The rock on whom the church is supposed to be built looked like anything but a rock, a pile of Play-Doh. You know that despite all that, I long to love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. His first call and his last call. Follow me. Most agree that this event is meant to show us that Peter is completely restored to a position of leadership. In fact, without this, we would not know what to think of Peter. After his threefold denial of the Lord, he returned to fishing, and there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus asked Peter, 
do you love me? Not once, but three times, corresponding to all three denials. Now, while commentators and most people in this room probably are most concerned about debating the significance of the Greek words for love in the exchange, of great interest to us this morning is something else. It's the threefold charge that Jesus issued in response to Peter's affirmation of affection and loyalty. Jesus could have responded with three different charges. Feed my sheep, baptize and disciple, go and be a revivalist. But he didn't do that. Instead, each time Jesus used words that brought Peter's attention to the imperative of caring for the flock. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my lambs. Not your sheep. My sheep. Not your lambs, my lambs. And now years later, when Peter could have written anything about leadership to these elders, Peter charged these elders who were to continue in leadership to shepherd the flock of God. Brothers and sisters, this is the essential work of elders in the church. But how are they to go about this work? They are to be shepherds. Shepherding is hard work. It is dirty work. It is long work. It requires you to wake up early. It requires you to stay up late. It requires you to chase sheep down. It requires you to do things that you don't want to do, like clean up feces. It is hard, nasty work. And how are they to do this work? Verse 2, exercising oversight. The assumption there is that the sheep need to be shepherded. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Notice here for Peter that his focus is less on what the elder is to do, exercising oversight. He does tell us that. Elders, shepherds should exercise oversight. They're to give leadership. You should expect that leaders should give you leadership. So don't be surprised when elders lead or shepherds shepherd or when we come alongside you. That is the essential task and job. But he focuses more on how they do it. So like a good preacher, Peter gives us three points. Three contrasting pairs of phrases that describe both appropriate and inappropriate ways for elders to go about exercising oversight. And in each case, he starts with the negative. First, elders are to pastor the flock Not under compulsion, but willingly. They should want to be elders. They should desire to be your pastors. The impulse to lead, Peter tells us, should come gladly from within. Because I think that there would be no other reason to continue serving when the demands of ministry become heavy or opposition to the minister and his ministry manifests itself. Not only here in 1 Peter, but here in our day, people stand against pastors for the decisions that they make. And just like any bad day that you've ever had at work, you can rest assured that the shepherds of this church have thought, I'm out. I don't want to do this anymore. Yell at somebody else. Complain about somebody else's decision. I'm tired. I want to go to bed. My family missed out on me for another night, too. Peter says, 
that you need to know in those moments is you don't do this under compulsion. It's not a paycheck. You do it willingly because you love the sheep. They are to come and they are to do this work gladly, willingly, giving themselves for hard shepherding work because they love the sheep, because they love the shepherd, and they've been loved by him. Second, elders must pastor God's people, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Peter does not mean that church leaders should not be paid. Paul is very clear about that in 1 Peter, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. It's not gain that Peter is denouncing. It's shameful gain. It's shepherds who love money and love comfort and love prestige and love platform and love leisure and love rest more than they love shepherding the flock of God, more than they love the sheep of God's flock, more than they love the great shepherd himself. He says that's shameful. You should do this willingly, as God would have you, and you must do this eagerly, not shamefully. You should do this because it is a delight and a privilege to be able to do this most high of callings. And third, elders must not domineer over those in their charge, but rather they are to be examples to them. Leading, not lording. This is one of the reasons, if you're a member of our church, we say not only are there to be a plurality of pastors, but we are elder-led, congregationally ruled, not elder-ruled, congregationally affirmed. We are to lead, not lord. Brothers and sisters, any so-called elder, so-called, alleged, professing elder, who is always exerting power, and always demanding rather than serving, and always insisting on his own way, own way, and always flaunting position, and always requiring that everybody agree with them, and that they are always right, and that no one can disagree with them, is no shepherd of God, and is no pastor at all. This pastor, just like that pastor there, just like the one who is not here today and the one who's on sabbatical right now, have all been voted down in elders' meetings. Because no pastor here is always right. Every pastor here has ideas that are sometimes wrong or maybe just not the best. Instead, elders, Peter tells us, are to be examples to the flock. Examples in what way? Flip over with me to chapter 2, verse 21. This is easier to see in your English Bible where perhaps you can see chapter 2 and chapter 5 at the same time. Chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. 
for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Shepherds of the flock of God are to be examples of humility, examples of self-sacrifice, examples of love for God. They are to be examples of, of passion in worship, congregationally and privately. They are to be examples of generosity. If you're worried that you pay your pastors too much, then you should not pay your pastors at all. You have the wrong pastor. Because if they're not a generous person, they're not qualified to be a pastor. They should be examples of devotion to family. And most of all, they should be examples of obedience to Jesus in all things. Because a pastor's life is to match his message. I wish I could communicate how fearful it is to preach this sermon right now. Because I know that they're on the front row. And they know all of the ways that my life does not always exemplify the gospel that I preach to you. But Peter says, a shepherd's life is to match his message, a message that he has learned to preach, and a message that he has learned to live by studying the gospel of Jesus Christ and by observing the life of Christ. Christ did not insist on his own rights. Christ did not complain and give up when it was hard. Christ continued serving at great cost to himself. Christ loved the people more than he loved himself. And those are the kind of shepherds that we want at Christ Church Westchester. And I can say that those are the kind of elders that you have in Renee and Nick. They are to be examples to the flock. A pastor's life is to be a picture of the life of Christ for the sheep in God's flock. Because as soon as you become a pastor, everybody begins watching. They begin watching. What do you do when you sing? Do you raise your hands? Are you using the program? How did you leave early? How many times did you leave? When did you go and do something? Everybody's watching. They want to see, how do I do this? So Peter says, pay attention. Your life is to be an example for the people. And if it's not something that they can emulate, then you are no shepherd at all. Peter focuses less on what elders are to do and more on how they are to do it because willing shepherds make healthy churches. Their continuity and authority... Their charge as shepherds. Notice third, their chief shepherd. Verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In chapter 2, verse 25, Jesus is described as the shepherd and the overseer of God's people. And in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, he is identified as the great shepherd of the sheep. Peter echoes that language here in calling Christ the chief shepherd of God's people. And he stresses by an implied contrast, the submission of elders to Christ. He's the chief shepherd. You are under shepherds. He's the Lord of the church. You are ministering to the people that he is Lord over. He is the one who rules and you help administer his rule in the context of the church. Pastors are under shepherds. Jesus is the chief shepherd. Elder shepherds God's flock. The church is Jesus' flock. Brothers and sisters, willing shepherds make healthy churches 
because they know they lead, not own God's people. They know that they lead, not own God's people, which is actually what makes leadership in the context of the church so difficult. If everyone were king for a day, everyone would do any number of things. And there are any number of decisions that you would have made throughout your life if you could have made them unchallenged and unrivaled. Rest assured that all of your pastors here have thought at some point, if everyone would do what I think is right, then we would all be happier. But that's not what shepherding in the context of the church is like. And not everyone listens, even if your idea is right. And even if you are pointing to the text. They lead, not Lord. They make healthy churches because they lead, not own God's people. And they do that because they recognize that there is a reward before them. Those who serve this way, according to Peter, verse 4, will receive the unfading crown of glory. Future reward motivates present faithfulness. Future reward does not negate present faithfulness. It motivates present faithfulness because there are many days, as Peter is encouraging these pastors, when they will not be able to see clearly that there is a future before them. There will be many days when they will be challenged and opposed and maligned and oppressed and ridiculed and ostracized and alienated and overlooked and forgotten about and criticized. So he says, future reward should motivate present faithfulness. That's something he says here to pastors. That's something that he's already said in this letter to members of churches. He wants to hold out for them the hope that is before them. Do not be discouraged. Do not be dissuaded when people do not follow. Keep leading, keep preaching, keep praying, keep going, because future reward motivates present faithfulness. When I began my ministry here, this is the reason that we have the Philadelphia Pastors Collective. If you're a member of our church, you generously give to that, whether you know it or not. When I began my ministry, I thought that it would be very hard to begin ministry, and it would be very easy to finish ministry. Because once you get going, my assumption would be is that you would be able to just continue rolling and get all the way to the end. And I can assure you, after seven and a half years, that I was incredibly naive and knew nothing. I realize it's really easy to start ministry. And it is tragically and unbelievably difficult to finish. It is incredibly hard to get to the end. One of my prayers is that I would make it to the end as your pastor. Whether I die tomorrow or die when I'm 70, that I would get to the line and finish. Your pastor, her wife, their dad, your friend. It is so easy to start. And it is so hard to finish because not only of the hardships of ministry, but indwelling sin that resides in your pastors. But what keeps us moving, Peter says, is the motivation of future reward, an appropriate future reward. Hearing the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. As servants of the word, as shepherds of the flock, 
the elder stands watch anticipating the attack of the evil one. And when he sees it coming, he does not flinch. My friends, we have so many pastors and elders today who abandon their flocks at the first sight of trouble. Speaking of a letter he received from his father as a young pastor, John Piper said, My dad once told me that the reason he thinks many pastors fail to see revival in their churches is that they leave just before it's about to happen. The long haul is hard, but it pays. The big tree is felled by many, many little chops. The criticisms that come your way will be long forgotten if you keep on doing the Lord's work. Or as Bill Cook, my former pastor, used to say, Raymond, you are foolish if you think that after preaching a sermon, everyone will go and do likewise. Preaching is taking a sledgehammer to a brick wall, and you get one swing a week, and sometimes you miss. I didn't find it funny, but that's great. No, so, whatever. You know. Modern ministry has become for so many people just a resume factory of resembling a climbing corporate ladder. It's a travesty, and it reveals just how far we have actually fallen from what Jesus calls his servants to be and to live like in the world. Jesus loved his church at great cost to himself. He loves every sheep in his flock. He knows every single one of them by name. And an elder must do and must be the same type of person. One of the reasons we give you a membership directory is not just so that you can pray for people, but so that we keep you constantly on our minds and in our hearts, reminding ourselves of who you are and what's going on in your life so that we can pray for you, so that we can care for you, so that we can rejoice with you, so that we can be there with you, so that we can hopefully suffer with you and help you make it to the end because we're not the only ones trying to get to the end of this thing. You are too. And so many of you began your Christian walk the same way I began my Christian ministry. Great, Jesus everything. And then five weeks later, you found out, this is really hard. And God has given you pastors to help you keep going, to pray with you through your battles, the sin, and to cry with you through disease that you can't control, and to be there to exhort you when you do foolish things, because we all do. And to encourage you as the eternal day of God is drawing near. Elders need to help their flock through this trying time. They are to shepherd them with pure motives. They are to be a good example to those in their care. They are to love God's flock. They must remember that they are simply under shepherds. Christ is the true shepherd who will lead his people out of the valley of the shadow of death. Willing shepherds make healthy churches because they understand suffering and service precede glory. That is what they should expect, and that is what you should expect. Their continuity and authority, their charge as shepherds, their chief shepherd. And fourth, I could not think of a see anything. So it's the fourth point. If you think of one, come tell me. Just look at verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now, notice the imperative here. I actually want you to flip back with me to chapter 
2, very quickly. Chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now drop down to chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. Now flip over to chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. And now here again, chapter 5, verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. I think Peter separated those for a purpose that is clear. One, all of those are bad uses of authority in chapter 2 and 3. You have human institutions that are taking advantage of people. You have leaders who are preying upon those that they're leading or masters who are preying upon their servants. You have unbelieving husbands disrupting the lives of their Christian wives. But then he separates it so that we would see good authority. There's bad authority, and they're still to be subject to it, even though it's bad, which is hard for us to think about and to swallow. We are to be subject to even those who do not use their authority rightly. And then there's good authority in chapter 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. But careful readers noticed that Peter here singles out one group in particular. You who are younger. Now, people have done all types of hermeneutical gymnastics to say this refers to everyone in the church and younger is just kind of young at heart and it means everybody. But that misses the point entirely. Because he is speaking to younger people. Now, on one level, younger is relative. In our church, younger doesn't mean a ton. I'm at the top end of the largest demographic in our church. I'm 37, and we have a lot of people between, like, 22 and 37. And then we have some other people sprinkled throughout, and we're really glad you're here, and we need you. We'll come back to you later. (laughs) But for younger people, why is Peter speaking to them? He's speaking to them because... Perhaps we often see, as we regularly do, that they are the ones who are most likely to not only be rebellious, but assume that they know it all, and assume that everyone else in leadership is not doing it as well as they would be doing it if they were in leadership. And hopefully, as they get older, they will, Lord willing, mature. But anybody who's lived for any length of time has learned that just because you're older doesn't mean you're wiser. Sometimes it means you've been ignorant longer. Younger does not always mean foolish either. But Peter teaches us that younger people in particular, younger believers, younger people need to be admonished. They need to learn to listen. They need to learn to be subject to submit themselves to those in authority. When I was in seminary, one of the blessings of being at seminary is that we had weekly chapel. In a weekly chapel, we would have people come, and they would preach for the seminary community. The seminary would shut down, and everyone was expected and heavily encouraged to go to chapel. And inevitably, what happens when you fill a room full with a bunch of preachers, everybody's sitting there thinking, I could do that better. My sermon would be better than that. That illustration's lame. That guy's tie's not straight. Everybody's sitting there thinking, if I was the man on the podium... I would be the one killing it, and everybody here would be falling out in revival. But inevitably, what happens when anybody starts to preach for any length of time, they realize, 
it's really easy to play the role of a great preacher in your head. It is much harder to play the role of a great preacher by preaching week in and week out and saying new things when you've already preached this passage and preach a different sermon because it's hard to study and it's hard to learn. Younger people need to be admonished by older people to play a longer game, to listen, to submit. I wonder if that characterizes some of us here today. Perhaps you're a younger person and you've not been a good listener. Or perhaps you've acted like a younger person and you should be more mature. Let me throw out some applications for us today. First, some of us have been looking for the wrong thing. Part of the reason that we've had difficulty in churches is because we've been looking for the wrong thing. Peter helps us see what a pastor is. Not by focusing on what he is to do, but by focusing on how he is to do it. Brothers and sisters who are among us, members of this church, when we put an elder candidate before you, we're asking you to step alongside us as you prepare to affirm that person with a vote to be looking for the right thing. Are they a shepherd? Are they doing this willingly? Are they doing this eagerly? Are they doing this as someone who is exercising their charge, as somebody who is an example to the flock? Look for the right thing. They might not be cool or good with words or dress well or speak good, but they might be a shepherd, and that is what you need. Second, some of us have wanted to be the wrong thing. We've looked for the wrong thing, but some of us have wanted to be the wrong thing. We've wanted to be a leader because we think, when I'm making the decisions, it's going to be all right. And Peter tells us that that is no shepherd. We've wanted to be a leader because we wanted to be in charge. Third, older men, we need you. Now, I'm speaking in general, but I'm also speaking specifically in our church. We need you to shepherd. We need you to pastor. We need you to lead us. We need you to walk among us as godly. We need you to be raised up as elders in our midst. We are a young people, and we need your help. And sometimes we simply just need you to exhort us to keep going and not quit. And it's always been hard and to keep praying, and to not lose heart. Younger men, we need you. We need you to aspire to this office. We need you to be patient with yourself, and to be patient with the church. And we need you to ask the question, what in your life would disqualify you from being an elder of this church in two to three years? Not every man in this church will be an elder, but what is it that would keep you from being an elder? Is it an unwillingness? Is it impurity? Is it bad doctrine? Is it wrong motive? And get the help of others around you. The work is great. We're about to have 134 members in our church, God willing. We need more elders. And if every man here turns away from the office because it's hard, you will have no shepherds. We need the older men and the younger men to lead like Christian men so that we might distinguish godly men as elders of this church. Fifth, for all of the members here, remember it is so much easier to rail and to criticize than it is to lead or to be a leader. And I would just ask you, less for myself, because I am greatly encouraged and love being your pastor, but especially for the other elders here, are you encouraging them? Or do you find yourself more quick and prone to criticize them and to think, that's wrong, 
We should do it a different way. They give themselves at great expense to themselves for you. Sixth, the elder vows, I think, are going to be up here. Okay, great. They're going to be up here. Look over these with me just very quickly. Do you reaffirm your faith in Jesus Christ as your own personal Lord and Savior? Just keep going. Do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the Word of God, completely trustworthy, fully inspired by the Holy Spirit, the supreme, final, and the only infallible rule of faith and practice? Do you sincerely believe the statement of faith and the covenant of this church contain the truth taught in the Holy Scripture? Do you promise that if at any time you find yourself out of accord with any of the statements in this statement of faith and covenant, you will, on your own initiative, make known to the pastor and other elders the change which has taken place in your views since your assumption of this vow? Do you subscribe to the government and discipline of Christ Church Westchester? Do you promise to submit to your fellow elders in the Lord? Have you been induced, as far as you know, your own as far as you know your own heart, to accept the office of elder from love of God and sincere desire to promote his glory in the gospel of his son? Do you promise to be zealous and faithful in promoting the truths of the gospel and the purity and peace of the church, whatever persecution or opposition may arise to you on that account? Will you be faithful and diligent in the exercise of all your duties as elder, whether personal or relative, private or public, and will you endeavor, by the grace of God, to adorn the profession of the gospel in your manner of life and to walk with exemplary piety before this congregation? Are you now willing to take personal responsibility in the life of this congregation as an elder to oversee the ministry and the resources of the church and to devote yourself to prayer, the ministry of the word, and the shepherding of God's flock, relying upon the grace of God in such a way that Christ Church Westchester and the entire church of Jesus Christ will be blessed? Who wants to take those? You could ask Dan for those this week and make those your prayers for the elders of this church. And as you aspire to this office yourselves, perhaps some of you should look at those and begin to think, this is the burden. Will I labor for it willingly? Seventh, I'm going to read for you Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. We are almost done. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. Are you exercising your membership in such a way that it is a joy for your pastors to do it? Eighth, we are called to exercise oversight. If the standards of what are right and wrong are self-generated from you, then by what standard can your pastors ever be expected to exercise oversight and admonish you? But the standards of how to live the Christian life do not generate from you. They generate from the Scripture. So when we come to you and call you to faithfulness and to attendance and to prayerfulness and to giving and to serving and to being present, we are doing that because we love you. People today are scared of authority. From elementary school through graduate school, Western educators teach us to question authority, as Jonathan Lehman said. 
the authority of the church because it silenced Galileo, the king, because he stole his power from the people, the Bible because of its alleged contradictions, the majority because of its tyrannies, men because of abuse, science because of paradigm shifts, philosophy because of language games, language because of deconstruction, the market because the rich just get richer, religious leaders because... They, uh, because of pastors like Mark Driscoll, politicians because they follow the money, the media because of bias, the police because of brutality, superpowers because of imperialism, and white people because of privilege and supremacy. There are a few authorities left to question, but gratefully God has sent his son to offer us the perfect picture of beautiful authority. And as we come to First Peter, challenges us as elders and members of this church how will you use whatever authority God has given to you? Will you use it like the devil wants you to, to the detriment of others? Or will you, like the perfect son of God, use it for the growth and the good of those whom you lead, whether they be your friends or your children or the members of your church, your fellow pastors, your fellow deacons, or the people in your community? Brothers and sisters, exercise whatever kind of authority God has given to you. And do it in such a way that it might be a blessing to people. It will not produce utopia, and anybody who belongs for that is foolish because it will not exist until Christ returns. But as the rain falls and the grass sprouts, it just might provide a small but an imperfect preview of the day when the desert shall rejoice and blossom. God-given authority is used by willing shepherds to make healthy churches. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these, the people of this church. And I pray, God, for them as the sheep of your pastor, pasture, that you would bless them and keep them and cause your face to shine upon them. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart this morning would have been used to encourage your saints. And I pray, Father, that on a day sooner than we might think, we will all rejoice and be glad when our Savior returns. Amen.